Egypt on the Brink Again, today, Tuesday, January 29th, from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Egypt's military warns the state could collapse if the political unrest continues. We'll have the details. Plus, female protesters continue to face sexual harassment in Tahrir Square, but this woman says she and other activists are not backing down. We refuse to stay at home. This is part of the struggle, and this is a very personal fight. Also on the program, a farmer who wants immigration reform so workers can move more freely across the border. How can we amass X amount of hundreds of thousands of troops at the border of Kuwait in a matter of a week, but we can't put a gate at the border that says, I got a job, you got a worker. (laughs) PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It can't be a good sign when the head of Egypt's army warns about a possible collapse of the state. But that's what General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi did today. Al-Sisi, who is also defense minister, said the Egyptian state could collapse if the country's political forces don't reconcile. His warning comes amid a wave of protests and violence that's left more than 50 people dead. Some of the violence is in Cairo, with unrest reminiscent of the anti-government protests that toppled longtime ruler Hosni Mubarak almost two years ago. But some of the worst violence has taken place in the city of Port Said, at the northern end of the Suez Canal. David Kirkpatrick, Cairo bureau chief of the New York Times, is on the line with us. And there's been turmoil in Egypt for two years, David. Now there's upheaval barely seven months into Mohamed Morsi's presidency. Uh, Tell us what the situation in the country is like right now. What do you see is happening? You know, the defense minister was in one sense stating something that we all already know, which is there's a rising tide of lawlessness in Port Said. It's probably correctly termed anarchy. And there's problems here in Cairo, too. You know, in Cairo, there's been street fighting sporadically since the revolt against Hazim Barak two years ago. But to be honest, it's been fairly confined. But this morning at about 3 a.m., that violence spilled out into an attack on a luxury hotel next to the American embassy, the Intercontinental Semiramis Hotel in Cairo. And it's, you know, the heart of the tourist business and the heart of the sort of diplomatic circle. That is a bad sign for stability here, uh, for the tourist industry, which Egypt badly needs Mm. to try to recover. In many ways, it's ominous. Now, David, you've returned from Port Said today. Tell us what you saw this morning on the streets there. Is it different from what's happening in Cairo? Yeah, it's very different. I mean, in Cairo, you have, again, still relatively localized anti-government protests. In Port Said, the whole city has risen up and thrown off the police. The police are cowering inside their stations, nightly battering mobs of protesters that attack them. Last night, they were firing live ammunition uh, fairly indiscriminately into the streets. This morning, I went to the site of one of those battles to follow up, and I saw bullet holes in some metal trash bins, uh, found bullets on the street, and also saw a number of bullet holes in the side of the police station. Uh, Last night, after I'd returned to the safety of a hotel, I could hear the automatic weapons from my hotel room. So that's a sign that things were really getting out of hand. 
So tell us what happened last night in Port Said at the time the 9 p.m. Uh, curfew took effect. Yes, just to put this in perspective, President Morsi has said a number of firm and even draconian things. He's talked about a state of emergency, suspending the right to trial. He's imposed a 9 p.m. curfew. And he's called on the military to enforce the law in these three restive cities. But in fact, none of that has worked. And at 9 p.m. when the curfew took effect, uh, citizens in all three cities, by the thousands, poured out into the street in protest. And as we we're just discussing, in Port Said, at least, they proceeded to attack a police station. What is the role of the army right now? What is their relationship with President Morsi? That's a very good question. As you'll remember, the generals took power when Mubarak left and held on to it for about a year and a half. They handed it over to Mr. Morsi in August, and it appears they were paid back for that by provisions in the new constitution that granted them broad autonomy over their own institution and within the Egyptian government. So now President Morsi calls on the military to help police the streets, but is he really directing the military or asking them nicely? We don't know. Uh, And then the following day, the defense minister warns publicly that unless the civilian political leaders get it together, things are sliding towards anarchy. Is he warning Morsi or just reporting the news? Again, we don't know. People I've talked to who are more or less close to the military say that this current group of military leaders truly has no appetite to take on a political role. Neither do they have much enthusiasm for the idea of going out in the streets and forcing people to back down. So they're really in a bind here. Unless the civilians can work something out, they're caught between a loss of credibility if they fail to quell the unrest and a loss of esteem if they use force to quell the unrest. I don't know what's going to happen next. David Kirkpatrick, Cairo Bureau Chief of The New York Times. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. The latest protests in Cairo's Tahrir Square have been marked by reports of sexual violence against women there. Unfortunately, this is not new. There were several reports of violence against women in the square during the Egyptian Revolution two years ago, and many since then, too. But over the past year, groups of female volunteers have formed to patrol Tahrir Square during protests, looking for women in need of help. Often, though, the volunteers themselves end up being assaulted or harassed. Sama El-Tarzi is a member of Operation Anti-Sexual Harassment, one of the groups helping women in the square. We have several hotlines, we have an operation room, and we have several teams on the ground distributed in different areas of the square. I imagine, though, that for every person who's calling your hotline, there are many others who don't call it. Gather you even witness somebody being assaulted. Last Friday, we could actually see assaults happening from the location where we were. And some of them were not even reported to us on the hotline, but we could see them with their eyes and we would try to intervene. Why this spike in these incidents? Why is this happening? We believe that a very big part of these assaults are organized. Sexual assault has always been a tactic used by the system to intimidate women and to punish women who take part in protests or in manifestations. And, and what's, so, what system and who's organizing these assaults? This, the system is the same system. The system did not change yet. All what is different is that the head of the system changed. Can you just clarify? So then you believe that the government of Egypt is perpetuating this violence? To a certain extent, yes. This is not new. We have had similar cases and similar assaults during the past two years. Uh, and even starting from 2005, where there was a very famous case of a female protester and a journalist who got stripped and assaulted sexually during demonstrations against the, a constitutional amendment during the rule of Mubarak. 
So it's not a new tactic used by the system to intimidate women taking part of uh, protests and manifestations. Are you hopeful for the future? I mean, you have this organization. Uh, On the other hand, it sounds like your organization has a huge challenge facing it. It does. And I think the positive thing is that finally someone is taking a proactive step to stop what's happening and to talk about it openly. Despite uh, what happened on the 25th, we keep on receiving calls for more volunteers and people who want to help. And this gives us a lot of hope that at least we are starting somewhere. Knowing the risks and the violence, what brings you and other women back to the square? We are being attacked for being women and um, not going back to the square and not taking part of this would mean that uh, we got defeated and that it means that the only safe place would be at home. And we refuse to stay at home. This is part of the struggle and this is a very personal fight. Salma El-Tarzi, a member of Operation Anti-Sexual Harassment in Cairo. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Women serving in the U.S. military are entering a new era now. Last week, the Pentagon lifted a ban on women serving in frontline combat roles. The new policy opens up a number of career opportunities that were previously off limits for female service members. But unofficially, many women in the U.S. military have long been serving in roles where they face the same dangers as male combat soldiers. One country with an even longer history of putting women in combat is Israel. It was more than a decade ago when the Israel Defense Forces started lifting restrictions for would-be female warriors, as the world's Matthew Bell reports. It's about midnight on a rocky hillside in southern Israel, next to the border with Egypt, when a suspected illegal migrant from the Sinai Desert runs into an Israeli army patrol. Who are you? What are you doing here? Take the fence off. Take the fence off. But I'm gone. I have to get down. I don't care. Take the fence off now. The soldiers point their assault rifles and order the migrant to strip in the chilly desert air. What follows is some uncontrollable giggling because this is just a drill, and all the participants, including the unidentified intruder, are part of the same army unit. The soldiers on this all-night training exercise are members of the Israeli army's only all-female combat intelligence company. It's called Nachshol in Hebrew, which means tidal wave. Essentially, their job is to go out into the desert and sit for days at a time, and just watch the border with Egypt. What's the short description of what you guys do? Uh, Basically, we need to bring from the field the best intelligence we know how to bring it without anyone knowing we're there, not even our own forces. Captain Dana Ben Ezra is the 28-year-old company commander of Nachshol, When I ask why the army has assigned women to do this particular job, Ben Ezra says, no offense, but they're just more intelligent than men. But what do you mean by that? What do you mean by more intelligent? More uh, patient, more um, common sense, you know? It's it's more, I don't know, it's something we're better. I mean, you are more aggressive and uh, you know how to scream. We know how to do the job, that's it. In 1995, an Israeli pilot named Alice Miller took the Air Force to court for denying her the chance to become a military pilot. She won the case, and since then, more combat-related jobs have been opened up for women in the Israeli military. Now women can try out for 90% of all military professions. 
Special forces and commando units are still off-limits, but women make up about 4% of Israel's combat forces, according to the military. There's a potential problem here, says Major Judith Webb. She was the first woman to command an all-male squadron in the British Army. What I'm talking about is women in the infantry to close with and to kill the enemy face-to-face. I don't feel that women have the physical capability of fulfilling an infantry role. I'm not talking about the emotional, the psychological, or any of those sort of effects, or what effect it may have on men. I'm talking about the physical limitations. How much is your pack weigh? This? I don't know, I didn't weigh it. It's actually not that bad, it's quite light. The members of Nachshol are part of a tiny minority in Israel's military. Very few women volunteer for combat duty. 23-year-old Abby Chernik is an exception. She grew up in the U.S., took citizenship in Israel after college, and then signed up for an extra year of combat service. She scoffs at the idea that women should be banned from combat roles in Israel or anywhere else. Just a couple months ago, uh, a female combat soldier in, uh, in the same area that we're in, actually, she uh, she shot and killed a terrorist who was uh, who had come over the come through the fence more accurately and uh, was firing on Israeli troops. I think women have already proved themselves in in the service in America and the fact that more women, many many more women, have died in service in America's army than in Israel's. The U.S. and Israeli militaries are very different in a lot of ways. Israel is the only nation that has mandatory military service for both men and women, though about half of all Jewish women in Israel do not serve in the military. Many opt to receive a deferment on religious grounds. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, outside Elat in southern Israel. Get a look at some of the women from the Nakshol Combat Intelligence Company. Matthew's pictures of their desert training are at theworld.org. And staying briefly in Israel, many there are still reacting to a cartoon that was recently published by Britain's Sunday Times. The cartoon by Gerald Scarf appears to depict Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu building a wall. The wall is made out of bricks, but also the blood and bodies of Palestinians. We've got the latest on that cartoon controversy and links to the lively debate that's still raging over the image. That's at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We and other news organizations have reported a fair amount of bleak news out of India recently, stories of rape and violence. Today, we thought we'd bring you a very different take on life in India. For this story, we go to Kolkata. It's a city known for oppressive poverty. But a community organization there is making life better for the poor by harnessing the idealism of youth. The world's Ritu Chatterjee has a story. In the heart of Kolkata, on the edge of the railroad tracks, is a sprawling slum. Tiny huts and small brick houses sit on a maze of narrow streets. Just outside the slum, new roads have been built and modern apartment complexes have sprung up. But here, the people have been left behind. Most homes don't have toilets, infectious diseases are a big problem, and residents don't have access to clean drinking water. But 14-year-old Shikha Patro 
is determined to change that. She and some younger kids from this neighborhood have gathered around a public faucet. While women wash dishes and clothes and fill their empty buckets, Patro asks them questions. She explains that she and her friends are doing a community water survey. She asks the women about the quality of the water. It's yellow, they reply, and it smells bad. We don't drink it. Patro types their responses into a smartphone. Then she types the address of the nearest house. 72. All of this information is directly uploaded from the phone to a database. It's how Patro and her friends are documenting the absence of drinkable water in the community. She plans to create a map with that data and use it to demand clean drinking water from the local municipality. Our biggest priority right now is water. It doesn't matter what it takes, how many years it takes, but we must bring drinking water to the neighborhood. This is one of many projects Patro and other kids in the neighborhood are working on as part of a child-driven community organization called Prayasam. It was started by a lawyer-turned-entrepreneur named Omlan Kushum Ganguly. I started this organization in the year 1996. But working with kids is not what he envisioned back then. He intended to work with adults to address public health issues. He recalls trying to convince parents to take simple measures, like washing their hands with soap to prevent the spread of infectious diseases. But time and again, he met with the same cynical response. They said, we don't have any time and we don't have to listen to all this rubbish. If I am talking about giving them some drinking water facilities or toilets or something, they will be interested. But taking onus of their own life, that should be done by some external agency. That was the adult's thought. I said, no, you can take onus of your own life. Just as he was about to give up on the project, something unexpected happened. Some of the children who were listening to all these conversations for days long, they approached me and said, can you work with us? So I said, why not? Today, his organization, Prayasam, works with more than 600 children, some as young as five or six. They live in slums all over Kolkata. He meets regularly with small groups to review and guide the work they are doing. But it's the children who decide what problems to tackle and how. The projects range from ensuring parents vaccinate their babies to helping classmates finish school. The children often use music and art to educate community members about problems they're trying to solve. They also engage the media and push government officials to pay attention to their problems. One of the group's initial successes was battling a garbage dump that sat next to people's homes. Shibashish Ghosh was among the kids who took on that fight. The smell from the garbage was so strong that it hung in the air, everywhere. It killed people's appetites. At first, they approached community elders for help. They said, we'll think about it. Well, they kept thinking. In the meantime, more and more garbage from distant places was being dumped there. So the children decided to act. Ghosh and his friends held rallies and performances all over the neighborhood. They invited a famous singer to help their campaign. He'd written a song about the need to clean up Kolkata. Ghosh still remembers the song. 
The singer and the kids performed the song in the middle of the garbage dump. That brought media attention. Local papers featured the kids and their work, and the city was shamed into taking action. The dump was removed. Today, where the garbage dump was, there are two playgrounds. Ghosh now works for Prayasam, and he tells younger kids in the organization about the playgrounds, showing them the power they have. I want them to know what we have accomplished with hard work and that we can do things. Nothing should stop you from trying. That's the essence of Prayasam's work. After all, the word Prayasam means to try. The organization is also creating young community leaders. Take, for example, Shikha Patro, the 14-year-old girl I accompanied on the water survey. She works regularly with the younger kids in her community on a range of projects. Today, she's in a classroom organizing a public health campaign. Patru says working with Prayasam has given her a new sense of who she is. Before, my identity was either as my grandfather's granddaughter or as my father's daughter or as someone who lives in the house by the temple. Now they say, that's Shikha. That's the girl who does the surveys or teaches kids to paint or trains them in sports. I feel like they know me for who I am. And it's not just people within her community that know her for who she is. Last year, she and a friend traveled to Oxford University to present their work to an international gathering of social entrepreneurs. Through her work, Patru says she's learned a lot about how to mobilize a community. People should feel this neighborhood is mine. Any developments, any improvements will affect me too. We don't need our group to grow in numbers, but we do want this kind of thinking, this sense of ownership to spread both within the group and in the rest of the community. She says a sense of ownership creates a sense of responsibility. And that is what drives a community to change for the better. For The World, I'm Ritu Chatterjee, Kolkata. And you can see 14-year-old Shika Patra in action. We've got photos of her and her fellow activists working to improve their community. That's at theworld.org. And while you're there, check out a short video based on a new documentary about these kids. The film is called The Revolutionary Optimists. It'll be broadcast on PBS in June. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, picking up the pieces in Timbuktu, fleeing Islamist rebels torched perhaps hundreds of historical documents, but many more were saved. Thousands were saved thanks to the bravery and the determination of some of the Timbuktu residents who regard these documents as their most absolutely precious cultural history. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. President Obama flew to Las Vegas today to build some momentum for immigration reform. The president praised the reform plan announced yesterday from a bipartisan group of senators. He said it's very much in line with his own plan, and he urged prompt action from lawmakers on Capitol Hill. And if Congress is unable to move forward in a timely fashion, I will send up a bill based on my proposal and insist that they vote on it right away. One economic sector that's anxious for Washington to act on immigration is agriculture. So this week we're exploring how farming in America fits into the reform equation. In California, some farmers are clamoring for policies that make it easier to hire workers, especially as a labor shortage leaves unpicked fruit rotting on the vine, and immigrant workers are demanding that their rights be recognized. From California, Adrian Florido of the public radio collaboration Fronteras has this story. Noel Staley's organic farm is at the end of a winding country road just north of San Diego. These are navel oranges. They're good. They're a little tart. It's a 200-acre farm, but orange and avocado crops only fill about half of it. The rest is empty. I've had to uh, cut back on what I plant in my fields. Decided not to harvest some things because I couldn't get the labor to do it. It's a long-standing complaint among farmers that the economy and tough immigration enforcement have sapped the local workforce. Now, in theory, this shouldn't be a problem. A federal guest worker program called H-2A allows Staley or any U.S. farmer to bring in as many temporary foreign workers, say from Mexico, as they need. But Staley laughs when I ask why he hasn't used the program. (laughs) I'm not doing it. (laughs) Eric Larson, head of the San Diego County Farm Bureau, doesn't blame him. Sure, the H-2A program says go ahead and bring farm workers in, but the H-2A program doesn't work. To participate, farmers have to prove to the Labor Department that they tried to hire U.S. workers but couldn't. They have to transport guest workers from their home country, provide housing and three meals a day. They also have to show their guest workers won't drag down local wages. Now, all this means lots of money, paperwork, often attorneys. And so, consequently, nobody uses it. I think we've got one farmer in San Diego County that uses the H-2A for about eight workers, where in reality we have 10 to 12,000 farm workers in San Diego County. He says those thousands of workers are a mix of laborers without papers and aging legal workers, neither ideal for farm owners. Across the U.S., farmers recruit about 55,000 H-2A workers each year, but they're mostly in Florida and the Midwest because here in California, enforcement of the H-2A program's rules is strict. Now, as immigration reform takes shape, the farm lobby wants to make hiring these workers easier. What Larson, the Farm Bureau director, wants is simple, a card that would let workers, mostly from Mexico, cross the border when needed. And then return home when the seasonal needs are over. But labor and immigrant rights groups say that an open-door guest worker program could hurt workers. They point to stories like this man's, who requested anonymity, worried that speaking out might risk his tomato-picking job. He arrived here illegally in 1973 and became a citizen when Ronald Reagan signed an amnesty. For years, he's picked on tomato farms alongside seasonal H-2A workers. He says he's told to keep up and pick fruit fast, for long hours, just like the guest workers. He says older workers like him face a lot of pressure to keep up, but it's impossible. He worries about getting rehired next season. He worries about getting replaced. 
Cynthia Rice is an attorney for California Rural Legal Assistance, which provides legal aid to farm workers. She says this worker's story highlights the threat H-2A poses to both guest workers and U.S. farm workers. The H-2A program still creates a second class of workers, in specifically in agriculture. She says that H-2A guest workers can't switch employers, even if they impose grueling production standards. Workers have to either stick it out or they can go home. The H-2A worker can't really vote with his feet. These concerns are driving some immigrant advocates to oppose any guest worker program. They say labor is available, and their focus is on legalizing the millions of undocumented people already in the U.S., hoping they'll fill these jobs and possibly demand higher wages. But the farming industry is pushing for the freedom to bring in temporary, low-cost labor. Both President Obama and Republicans recognize this need, which is why some advocates hope for at least stronger labor rights for all workers. Noel Staley, the citrus and avocado farmer, says his needs are clear. He needs more workers, and the proof is in his empty fields. One of my employees said this years ago, said, how can we amass X amount of hundreds of thousands of troops at the border of Kuwait in a matter of a week, but we can't put a gate at the border that says, I got a job, you got a worker. (laughs) At the same time, the tomato-picking farm worker says he'd like to keep working alongside his undocumented friends. He wants everyone to have more rights and less fear, and says another amnesty would help. He says it would be great to see that promise fulfilled. This year may determine whether both men see their wishes realized. For The World, I'm Adrian Florido in San Diego. For today's GeoQuiz, we're going to talk with a motorcyclist in Cuba. This guy's leading a group of bikers on a ride across the island from Havana to Guantanamo. Today, they stop to fill up their tanks in a city on Cuba's southern coast, and that's the place we want you to name. The city's about 150 miles from Havana. It's one of Cuba's important seaports, where sugar, coffee, and tobacco are shipped out. There's an 18th century fortress still standing near the entrance to the bay. It was once used to fend off Caribbean pirates. And here's a linguistic clue. The city's name is Spanish for a hundred fires. So we'll get the answer and rev up this motorcycle diary in Cuba in just a few minutes. In Mali, residents of Timbuktu are celebrating the liberation of their ancient city. French and Malian troops reclaimed the city yesterday. It had been under the control of Islamist rebels for the past 10 months. Preservationists, though, continue to worry about the fate of ancient texts that have been housed at Timbuktu's Ahmed Baba Institute. The rebels torched the institute as they fled the city, possibly destroying tens of thousands of priceless historical documents. Vivian Walt is following the story for Time magazine. There seems to be, Vivian, conflicting reports about the fate of those documents. What are your sources telling you? Are they safe or are they destroyed? Most of my sources in Timbuktu have been telling me for months that they have hidden them away. And although they did, they were loath to discuss this publicly, and I, I vowed not to publish anything until Timbuktu had fallen, I really had been told for months that they were fairly safe. Last night, most of my sources told me that they had hauled out almost all of the documents from the Ahmed Baba Center, the major library in Timbuktu, and hidden them in a safe 
house elsewhere. Now, I've been hearing comments from the mayor of Timbuktu, who actually, I believe, is not there. He's in the capital, Bamako. But he seems to believe that many of the documents were destroyed. Well, I spoke to the mayor late last night after I'd spoken to all the Timbuktu preservationists. Now, the mayor has, I must say, not been involved directly in the preservation um, efforts, nor was he involved in the rescue efforts. Um, and he did concede that he knew that many of the manuscripts had been removed, although some of them had been left behind. As far as I could understand from my sources, some of them had been left behind partly because they were in such a rush to get them out of there, and also because they didn't want to make it look as if the center had been totally emptied um, deliberately. Right. So w- w- any word on those documents that remained in the library? Because this is a new library built in uh, 2010, and uh, those documents that didn't make it out, presumably, are they destroyed or do we just not know? Nobody's actually taken an exact inventory, and part of the problem is that the telephone lines to Timbuktu are still cut. People are actually walking or cycling to the nearest village where there is a telephone line so that they can call people in Bamako to tell them what they're seeing. So they are going to need a few days to piece it all together. But I think we can safely say that, yes, there certainly were documents that were destroyed, maybe hundreds of documents, but thousands nonetheless were saved thanks to the bravery and the determination of of some of the Timbuktu residents who regard these documents as their most absolutely precious family heirlooms and uh, local cultural history. Now, one thing many people in Timbuktu, in Mali, all over the world knew about these documents uh, before the risk uh, from the extremists came into Timbuktu was that there was a lot of neglect. They were not very well cared for. Do you think this incident, the, the, the risks that these documents faced, and now they seem safe, relatively speaking, but will that neglect change? I mean, will there be greater care taken now to preserve these documents? Well, it's astonishing when you go to Timbuktu and you see really that 90% of them are being stashed away in rickety closets in somebody's mud house in the middle of the desert. It's just, you know, one's mouth drops open and it's going to take a lot of money and in some ways political compromise to get these documents into a place where they really are properly curated and looked after as they would any other precious museum piece, which is what they are. Um, The real problem is that the people of the North have absolutely no faith and no trust in the people in Bamako, and hence there was really a bit of a political battle as to where they should be housed, and they would never have gotten the agreement from the people in the North to house them in Bamako, which of course would be a lot safer. Incredible. You know, um, here's something I don't quite understand, and maybe you can help us out, Vivian. Knowing that fanaticism doesn't always make sense. I mean, the Ahmed Baba collection contained numerous decades-old Qurans, uh, some more than a century old. Uh, they include evidence that the Islamic world made important contributions to astronomy and mathematics and history. Why would Islamic militants then burn them? Honestly, there is no logical reason why the jihadists would want to destroy these manuscripts. They are the Islamic history of Africa. They prove, in fact, that Africa had a very rich literary tradition at the height of the Renaissance era and even before, things which really Western historians have neglected for many years. So Africans, and especially Muslim Africans, have every reason to preserve and champion these documents. So I think that it's more a reflexive response, really, to the documents rather than any real logical reason why they should want them gone or destroyed. 
Vivian Walt with Time Magazine telling us what we know about the ancient manuscripts at the Ahmed Baba Institute and Library in Timbuktu. Vivian, always good to speak with you. Thank you. You're welcome. The recent violence in Mali contrasts sharply with the sweet music produced there. I traveled to Mali in 2002 to report on some of the country's musicians like legendary guitarist Ali Farkature. At theworld.org, we've just reposted two of my audio diaries from that trip. There's also a story about singer Haira Arbi, who sang for me in Timbuktu at the time. And now it's eerie to hear, knowing how music would be banned there years later. You can hear those stories at theworld.org. Time to get to the answer now to our geo-quiz. We're going to check in with a Harlista. That's a Cuban nickname for someone who's a fanatical Harley-Davidson owner. Christopher Baker is riding across Cuba. He's just stopped for gas. Hi, Chris. Um, yes, we're here with a group from Texas riding our BMWs and Harleys, and we're riding with the Cuban Harlistas. How many Cuban Harlistas are there on the island? Well, let me ask Luis. He's the president of the Harley-Davidson Club of Havana, which is the oldest in the world, and he happens to be here next to me. Luis. ¿Cuántos cubanos tiene Harley's aquí en Cuba? More or less 75. Wow, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, these are the old Harley's, the pre-revolutionary, because there are no modern Harley-Davidson's since the revolution. It, it must be a pretty revered motorcycle down there. I mean, if you're going to buy a motorcycle, would you rather have a Harley or a BMW in Cuba? <laughs> well, I think the Cubans would love the possibility to buy a motorcycle, but that's not very easy. Certainly there are no Harley Davidsons to say here, that's for sure. <laughs> Everywhere we go, the Cubans just pour out of their offices and out of the bars, etc., just to be with us. And they're just full of amazement that we're arriving here, not least with the Harleys. We have one modern Harley Davidson that's being ridden by an American couple also. So when you come across a, a bunch of Cubans who are really curious about the Harley, do they ask you to kind of give a little gas and hear that engine crank out? Oh, not only that, the ladies want to get on the back. That's so much fun. <laughs> so, Chris, tell us exactly where you are on the island of Cuba right now. We're in the city of Simpuegos. It is about two hours east of Havana uh, on the south coast. A beautiful city that was recently restored. We're here in the main plaza of the town, surrounded by the cathedral and beautiful 19th century theater. It is a total time warp. And that's one of the things I love about Cuba. You feel like you're in a Hollywood stage set. Is it a beautiful ride, or are you uh, often having to pay attention to the road and dodging donkey carts or you know, <laughs> bicycles going Yeah, uh, you know, I once was on the freeway in Cuba, and there was a horse car coming down against me in the fast lane on the freeway. So you've always <laughs> to be careful of oxen, ox carts, farmers crossing the freeways and roads. But it is one of the most beautiful countries in the world, and especially today, the first time we'll be going up into the mountains. We've been riding on the flat for two days. I, I gather you got a Treasury Department license to undertake this tour of Cuba. I've heard of doctors and religious and educational groups getting permission, journalists as well. What did the Treasury Department feel was the virtuous part of riding motorcycles around Cuba? <laughs> you know, I wrote the application, uh, which was at first denied because they said, well, this sounds like too much like recreation instead of meeting with Cubans. And I went back and I said, no, that's not the case. We're using a motorcycle to get between the same points just as we would on a bus, but we're having the same meetings, the same encounters with Cubans, which are required under U.S. law. Well, Chris, it's been great speaking with you. I'm wondering if you could just give us a good burst of the throttle on the Harley so we can hear what it sounds like. Okay. Just a second, and we will put the phone by the engine. 
times. That was pretty good. It wasn't exactly the drama I was expecting. It sounded more like a bunch of people jumping in the pool. But I think <laughs> Harley sounds the same everywhere around the world. It doesn't change. Christopher Baker riding across Cuba on a range of BMWs and Harley Davidsons with his fellow Harleistas. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you for having me on. Did you hear the Geo answer? Cienfuegos, Cuba. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. This next story will have Rastafarians terrified. The dateline is Johannesburg, South Africa. A man was recently robbed of his dreadlocks at a South African nightclub. It's believed that the man's dreads were stolen to feed a growing demand for human hair extensions. It seems that dreads have become a valuable commodity. Poppy Lowe is a reporter with the Times newspaper in Johannesburg. So you wrote about this dreadlock theft, Poppy. Uh, First of all, what happened to this man? How were his dreads cut off without his consent? Well, from what his friends told me is that they were hanging out at a club and he left his friend's side for a little while. He went out looking for him and he found him passed out on the floor and his hair, which he had grown for 10 years, was cut off. Is the theory that the thieves gave him some knockout drops and then just shaved him? Not quite, because he had been drinking. I mean, they were, they were out clubbing. He had consumed a lot of alcohol. The thing is, from what I've heard, is that the victims aren't really hurt physically. So how popular are dreads, specifically real people's dreads, real hair? They are quite popular. I've got dreads myself. It looks very neat and tidy, and you look very fashionable. And a lot of women have been coming out and getting dreads. But I didn't know about dreadlock extensions until about two, three years ago. I would see someone who had hair that was shorter than mine, and after two months, their hair is down their back, <laughs> you know? Now, your your dreads yeah. are real, though, yeah? Yes, mine are real. I've had them since 2004. Had you ever thought about uh, the possibility that some thief might just cut them off? Not really. That's the weird thing, is that I don't walk around thinking that someone might just terrorize me and take my hair. But but that's also because I don't wear my hair loose. A lot of the victims were walking around with their hair loose. So, you know, with a lot of stories, it's always about follow the money. So how much can you get for a good, healthy set of dreadlocks? A good, healthy set of dreadlocks? Well, uh, mine are not even halfway down my back. So um, I've heard that mine could go for 1,005. 1,005 rand. Yeah, 1,005 rand. That's about 150 bucks. Yeah. So that's pretty good for just sitting down in a barber's chair. But you've got no plans to shave yours, I suspect. I actually do, but I'm not selling it to somebody. I'm giving it to my sister. When I said that I'm ready to cut mine, it's it's been a long time. I need to let go of all the drama that's attached to the locks. And then she was like, no, 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 you can extend my hair with him. Well, change can be good. Theft is not good, though. That's the problem that people now realize that there is currency that's attached to dreadlocks, and it's very, very scary. Poppy Lowe, a reporter with the Times newspaper in Johannesburg, she wrote about these dreadlock thefts. There's a link to her story at theworld.org. Poppy, very nice to speak with you. Thanks. Thank you very much. And if you want to see photos of Poppy's dreads, well, that's at theworld.org, too. 
Let's turn to some other long hairs now, some guys from Sweden who actually don't have dreads, but they do count some big hair in their band Graveyard. Hey, this is hard rock after all. And I gotta say their music will give you a jolt in a good way. You'll hear what I mean in just a moment. The band's drummer is Axel Hobra, and he's the one who's responsible for the essence of Graveyard's jolt. Physically, Hobra says, rock drumming is a tough gig. Well, I guess it exhausts me because it's uh, quite... uh energy draining to play live, but it's also fun. You say it's exhausting. I've heard that uh, rock drummers burn more calories on the job than any artistic occupation. How do you stay fit? Well, I guess I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe when I go home from a tour, you can say I'm fit, but then uh, unfortunately, when you stay at home, you lose that quite fast. So now my body's aching and I've got blistered hands. But I'll be all right in a week, I guess. I can surely understand. Well, let's let our listeners in on, on what I'm understanding. We'll listen to an industry of murder. Just in case everyone in, in Radioland thinks your music goes for the gut, you also aim for the heart. And just kind of studying your CD lights out, you've got some interesting sequencing of songs. It's not all in your face, kind of hard driving rock. For example, after that song, An Industry of Murder, you put on the brakes and head into this down tempo tune, slow motion countdown. How studious were you about shaking things up and not just pursuing this constant fast beat? I think uh, probably why we're doing quite quite well with our music is because we like dynamics. It can be uh, slow and soft and then fast and hard and everything in between. I think it makes makes it more interesting to uh, to watch a show or listen to an album that, you know, takes you different places. in the band and you all share songwriting credits it's often hard for musicians to answer this question but is songwriting really a group endeavor how do you write your songs it's very different from song to song but i think in the long run it's uh, wise to to share everything because mm. uh, you're probably much better friends than if you see you know one guy getting rich uh, and the other guys you know still trying to uh, get enough money to pay rent right you know, hard rock, I think it may surprise some listeners in this country that uh, hard rock is, is so adored uh, in Sweden. But it, it, it's kind of adored across northern Europe. What, why do so many northern Europeans love hard rock? Is it that angry Viking thing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I, they say like uh, the Scandinavian or the Swedish like uh, mood is like melancholic and with uh, nice sad melodies. But... Uh, I don't know how that fits in with the uh, hard rock and heavy metal. Yeah, this is your game now. You know, you hear the Viking thing all the all the time. We haven't seen any Vikings for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the Viking thing seems more to be 
a way to sell a bit more tickets or sell a bit more records because people like them more abroad. It's a bit exotic with the helmets and stuff. Yeah, you're not going to go on American stages with those horned helmets, are you? No, there's uh, enough bands doing that, and uh, I don't know. I just think it's weird. Axel Hobra, drummer for the Swedish group Graveyard and vocalist Joaquin Nilsson chimed in briefly at the end there. The band is in the middle of a U.S. tour right now. Listening to this, I feel I'm speeding down the New Jersey Turnpike in a Camaro with a bunch of Swedes. That's weird, too. You can see if they're playing in a city near you at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.